You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like... Help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, you know, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Shauna. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Raquel Innes Shelton, an Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the University of Alabama Multiple Myeloma Clinic over at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shelton. Thank you for inviting me. We're very happy to have you on this episode. Now, we'll be talking about myeloma, of course, but before we do, we always like hearing about how our speakers got into their field. So what brought you to the field of medicine, specifically hematology and oncology? Well, it's kind of a sordid story. After medical school, I wanted to be either a pediatrician or a GYN doctor and couldn't figure it out. And I really wanted to deliver babies, but I wanted to be kind of like the whole female doctor. And I thought I would do internal medicine first, then do GYN. And when I did my rotation for hematology oncology in residency, I just fell in love with it because it was so different. For one, there were two separate rotations. Oncology was uh, specifically just uh, treating kind of what we call solid tumors, like tumors within organs that can be cut out or irradiated or treated with chemotherapy. And the relationship that I developed with the patients that I was involved with was unlike the relationship that uh, existed in just regular primary care. It was a deeper relationship. There was there was life or death issues that were discussed. You were welcomed into very intimate places within a patient's family as well as their, you know, fears and desires and just uh, very personal stories and it, it was very meaningful to me. And the hematology rotation, uh, at the time there was a tragedy that was in Atlanta. Unfortunately, there was a shooter that attacked a bunch of random people and they were placed in different hospitals all over Atlanta. Oh, and wow. myself and the hematologist just went from hospital to hospital to hospital and there were all these waiting rooms full of these very anxious families. And his role was because, you know, it was like a, a blood product crisis, really, in the city. It was, I think it was 40 or somewhere between 40 to 70 people involved. I can't remember. It was such a long time ago, but it was quite a big number. And uh, he went through and he kind of, you know, put all the puzzles together of what blood products needed to go where and what people needed. And he was kind of side by side with the surgeons. And it just, it was all these anxious families we would go and talk to and, and you know, try to help their loved ones. And that was such a 
you know, that really changed my mind about either going to GYN or pediatrics. I, I just knew hematology and oncology was the thing for me. Wow. Wow. That, it's, it's interesting to see kind of how you shifted from what you wanted to do versus this event happening and how that kind of refined your focus in regards to what you, what you will actually end up doing. Absolutely. It stirred up something in me that I didn't, it, I didn't even know existed. And it, it stirred up a passion that I didn't have before. And I had to listen to it. Like I couldn't ignore it. Like nothing else stirred me that way. Right. That's when you know, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's very interesting. So you know, now that you work in hematology, oncology, and you work with myeloma, could you tell us a little bit more about what myeloma is and maybe the different types of myeloma? Because it's a bit confusing. You've got multiple myeloma, you've got plasma cytomas, um, extramedullary myeloma. So could you tell us a little bit about um, what all those forms are and what myeloma is? Yeah, so it's really a lot of names for the same disease. So multiple myeloma is a bone marrow cancer. So inside of the soft spongy portion of your bone is the marrow and that's where all the blood formation occurs. And some of these cells are made and released into the bloodstream to do whatever work they need to do in the body. There's a set of cells called plasma cells, which are kind of like, they look like a football. They're kind of oblong and they're a specialized type of white blood cells that initially they're made in the lymph nodes, but then eventually they have their final resting place in the bone marrow where they mature and they really stay there for the most part. And what they put out into the bloodstream are antibodies that help us to fight infection. And then we have, you know, a multitude of antibodies that work in different parts of the body and have different jobs. So everyone has plasma cells, everybody makes antibodies if, if you're healthy, unless you have some genetic disorder where um, that's impaired. But some people's plasma cells become diseased and they start to clone themselves. They over multiply within the bone marrow space. Plasma cells are only supposed to occupy about 5% of the bone marrow space and they're supposed to be a wide variety of types that make a wide variety of different types of antibodies. But when the genes inside of a plasma cell become broken and there's malignant activity, they start to replicate and crowd out the bone marrow space. Now, in some patients, these cells will multiply and just not do anything. They just sit there and they slowly divide and they won't really move through the bone marrow space. And that's kind of a precancerous state, which we call monoclonal gammopathy of unspecified significance, if you can say that all five times fast, then you <laughs> might win a prize for that. But we just call that MGUS. That's the precancerous state. But for whatever reason, reasons we don't know, some people stay at MGUS and some people continue on progressing where these plasma cells continue to multiply and kind of chew their way through the bone marrow like little Pac-Man. I, I think you guys sound kind of young, so I don't know if you know the game Pac-Man. But <laughs> we um, do. Really I know, yeah, I know Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's how I describe it to my patients. It's like they're little Pac-Man and they just chew, chew, chew their way through. And they make all of these antibodies that are identical and they don't really serve any purpose for fighting infection. But what they do is they float through the bloodstream and they can cause tissue damage. And the most sensitive tissue is actually the kidney. So that's why kidney damage is kind of part of this syndrome that happens with multiple myeloma. 
and in addition while the um, plasma cells are chewing their through their way through because they they just take off and they want to divide and thrive really at the expense of the patient that they're living in but they develop kind of a mind of their own as they chew their way through they make these bones very weak and fragile and very susceptible to breakage with very minimal activity just like walking or reaching or coughing can cause a fracture in a bone and when these uh, cells are chewing their way through uh, calcium can be released into the blood and they emit different proteins that suppresses the immune system as well as healthy blood activity and so uh, there's a suppression in regular blood formation so patients become and can become anemic and they have fatigue due to these multiple symptoms due to these multiple interactions within the bone marrow and can develop pain symptoms and so that's as far as plasmacytoma goes, a plasmacytoma is when these plasma cells kind of heap up in one particular region. They start in the bone marrow, but then they kind of expand out. And as they're multiplying, they kind of form like a ball or a bulge inside of a bone. And that, But that's one plasma cell tumor or one or more plasma cell tumor but it might not have any effect on any other organs. When you have the myeloma that's moving through the bone marrow and emitting antibodies that cause tissue damage, then that is kind of a widespread all over the body kind of phenomenon. So if you break up what multiple myeloma actually means, myelo means marrow, oma means tumor. So when you get a widespread disease that's called multiple myeloma, which stands for multiple marrow tumors, when you have a plasmacytoma, it's just a one tumor ball of plasma cells. When we say extra medullary, medullary is the marrow. So any plasma cells that kind of coalesce in an organ outside of the bone marrow or bone, that's what you call extra medullary disease. So it's really all the same disease. It's just where it's moving or where it's sitting is that's how it's kind of defined. Oh, okay. So we know that a risk factor, right, is anything that changes a person's chance of getting the disease, such as cancer. So for example, exposing skin to strong sunlight is a risk factor for skin cancer. What are the risk factors that could affect someone's chance of getting multiple myeloma? Well, for the most part, the risk factors are, are somewhat unknown, except for if you have the precancerous state, the monoclonal gammopathy of unspecified significance, and no one knows why anyone develops that, but African Americans happen to have that precancerous condition two to three times more likely. Um, more frequently than Caucasian Americans for reasons that are not clear but may be traced back to West Africa where the incidence of um, myeloma between black and white males are about the same as what we see worldwide. So having that precancerous state is a risk factor for forming myeloma and it transforms about one percent per year. So in a 25 percent 25-year period, you have about a 25% chance of converting to myeloma. With that said, there are some people that don't convert to myeloma, and that's actually a big area of research now, trying to figure out what makes one set of patients with MGUS transform and then the other don't. 
Myeloma has also been linked to increased BMI. However, to say that if you have higher BMI, then you will get myeloma is a bit of a stretch. It's just kind of been associated with it. As far as I always get the question, does it run in families? Well, there have been, and we have epidemiologists here at our institution as well that study uh, familial as well as environmental factors that are associated with myeloma development and the transformation from MDS to myeloma. And there are very few family clusters that have been identified. Probably less than 5% of the myeloma cases are family clusters. But one thing that has been demonstrated is that if you do have like a first degree relative with myeloma, your chances of getting myeloma increase. But as far as the link, like if mom has it, then her daughter needs to screen. It's not that close. Um, so I think that the thought process is, although it's increased, there must be environmental factors that help to uh, increase the likelihood of actually developing myeloma that have not been clearly defined. So as far as if there's something a person can do to avoid myeloma, we haven't figured that out yet. And making the diagnosis kind of is a, sometimes a little ominous. Like it's, uh, you know, we often get the patients who come and say, you know, I've been going to doctors for years. Why did, why didn't anyone pick this up? And it, and it can kind of sneak up on you a little bit. It's not something that's readily picked up in routine blood work. And some of the things that are identified in regular blood work may may be common. So like a person. You know, some people have a little anemia and a little high protein, and that raises the suspicion of their primary care doctor to run a special test to see um, what the details of the antibody profiles are inside of their blood. And then if it there looks like there's a suspicious antibody floating around in the bloodstream, that may prompt a bone marrow biopsy. But more often than not, patients are not diagnosed that way. More often than not, patients uh, already have like bone pain or they've fractured something in a setting that they really shouldn't have fractured something like. You shouldn't fracture your arm vacuuming, you know, that's not appropriate. And so that would prompt further investigation of, you know, why you had this, we call what we call a pathologic fracture, like that's a, that's a fracture that's not supposed to happen in that setting. By that time, when your bones are that weak and fracture for minimal activity, you, you pretty much have had the disease for an unknown period of time, but it does require systemic chemotherapy. And I actually happy you touched on that because my next question or my next comment was going to be about how difficult it can be to diagnose. We spoke with so many patients, one whose husband, he had pain in his feet actually, that's how it started, and no one saw anything different in his blood tests, and so it wasn't an area of concern, but the pain got increasingly worse, and it wasn't until he actually traveled abroad where they did blood work again because he was not feeling well, and they said, you know, things are not looking that good. You should probably check this out when you get back to the States. That's when that journey began. But we hear all these stories about back pain, feet pain, and these incidences where people always ask, how was it that it wasn't something that the doctors saw earlier? Yeah, and just to uh, jump off of that, Alicia, I was thinking as you were talking about MGUS and the increased risk factor, and then you're saying it doesn't show up on a regular CBC that you might get, on your yearly physical. So how would somebody even know that this is something they need to look out for? I'm sure the average healthy person doesn't really go around thinking about MGUS or myeloma. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, when you think about the big cancers, you know, I always think of the big cancers as like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. Myeloma is probably one to two percent of all cancers. And so it's a low population of patients in the cancer family that will have this. Now, as far as blood cancers go, it's, it's been said that myeloma is the second most common blood type of cancer behind non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But still, I think the older that you get, doctors may think about screening you a little bit differently. Is in general a disease of older patients. So adults in America over the age of 60, probably 3 to 5% are walking around with an MGUS. And so if you have anemia that's not well explained, maybe that's something, you know, I mean, how many people have anemia is kind of a common complaint. But if you have anemia that's not explained or fatigue, you probably could ask, hey, you know, what are my risks for having, you know, something other than iron deficiency or, you know, some other reason for anemia? I mean, if you're over 60 and you're anemic, the biggest risk or disease that probably comes into the mind of a primary care doctor is whether or not the patient has colon cancer and will do that sort of screening. But if that workup is negative, I think if the patient can keep probing, hey, well, you know, what, what is the reason for my anemia? Could it be something else? Back pain is very common. And so it's not uncommon that we have patients who have had back pain for years, but then they get an unrelenting back pain that's more severe than prior. Most people will explain it by, oh, you know, I you know, lifted a piano last week or, you know, I've been babysitting my toddler grandchildren or something like that. But I think, you know, in our busy lives, sometimes it's, it's easy to not pay attention to things in our body. But if you do have a pain that persists and doesn't go away, or like we have these red flags for, you know, significant pain. Like if you go to sleep with it and wake up with it, like rest doesn't make it better or Definitely, if you have like numbness or tingling associated with the pain, things like that should prompt you to say, something is not right, can you do an x-ray? An x-ray itself for myeloma is a somewhat limited evaluation because you have to have at least 30% of the bone degraded to be picked up on a regular plain x-ray. So when your x-ray is negative, if the pain doesn't go away, you need a kind of a bigger x-ray, like that's when we need to be talking about either MRI or CT scan that can get a little bit more detail. And so, especially in the African-American community where myeloma is diagnosed twice as frequently, I find that I don't really understand why it's not well talked about in that population because, or any population for that matter, because everyone's heard of leukemia and lymphoma. And so I just, I don't really understand why there's not more conversation about multiple myeloma. And so I think some of it is we need to get the word out that myeloma is a complex disease. And it's one of these diseases that affects multiple organs. And once you get myeloma, um, right now it's, it's still considered incurable. And the chemotherapy for a majority of people will last lifelong because even when we get the disease under control and what we call remission, it's just controlled, it's not cured. And the 
plasma cells are really smart. They're adaptable. They're part of our adaptable immune system. And so once they become cancerous cells, they don't lose that adaptability. They keep that adaptability. And so uh, they adapt to their environment and eventually will relapse and need more treatment. So for that reason, most patients are on lifelong therapy. There are people that are looking at um, more aggressive ways to treat myeloma once it happens. And also there's a group of investigators that are looking for ways to prevent myeloma from happening, which would be ideal if there could be, you know, we know there's a precancerous condition and if there could be some type of a way to identify these patients more efficiently and have predictors of uh, progression, then maybe we could prevent people from progressing to having the disease. We're not there yet, but that is a sort of a holy grail of multiple myeloma is could there be a way to prevent it. And you mentioned the need for myeloma to be spoken about a little bit more. And here at LLS, in efforts to get the word out, we created this resource called Myeloma Link. And it connects African-American communities to information, expert care, and support. And the people who are listening can actually learn more about it by visiting www.lls.org slash myeloma link. And again, the purpose of it is to enhance myeloma knowledge and access to latest treatments within African-American communities. Excellent. So jumping into diagnosis, I know that you mentioned people come in with back pain, and that's actually, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people will say, will not understand that myeloma is a blood cancer because of the fact that they think, oh, it's my, it's my back, it's my foot, it's, you know, it's bone. And we have to, like you said, we have to mention that it's bone marrow, but it, it is considered a blood cancer. So when someone is diagnosed with myeloma, what are the other symptoms that they may experience? So pain is the number one symptoms, but the other would be fatigue. And when it gets far gone enough, when you're talking about a person who has kidney damage or uh, elevated calcium in the blood, then we're talking about kind of increased somnolence or mental confusion. And that's when we're going into the emergency department. And so that is not an uncommon story as well, is that patient, and this is not something that happens suddenly, I think patients may have some symptoms that they may dismiss and not really know that it really means something. It's not like irresponsible on the part of the patient. I think we all do it because we have busy lives. You have an ache or a pain and you're like, oh, I just did this, or I'm more tired because I'm working on this project all the time. But it's really this fatigue that just doesn't make sense. Like you can't sleep it off, like, and you're just really tired. And then, you know, this disease continues on. Myeloma is a disease that's different in every person that it's affected because there's a there's so many different mutations that can happen inside of a plasma cells that can make it go rogue if you will and so depending on the genes that are involved in making your plasma cells become malignant uh, kind of dictate your symptoms so there's some people that can have kind of a slow growing myeloma and there's some people that can get rapidly ill very quickly and there's all kinds of variations in between. And it depends on how critical the genes are that are broken and what their role is in uh, the regular cellular world. And some of them, when they're either duplicated or missing, it wreaks havoc. It's like a downward spiral. Then there are other changes that can make the plasma cell malignant, but it, it may not be aggressive malignant, but it's malignant enough that with time it does cause trouble. So. 
the symptoms are there's like an array of symptoms and I think the heaviest symptom would be the, the fatigue not only from anemia but just because of the type of proteins that are emitted from the plasma cell and bone pain there's some patients that could uh, see a decrease in their urinary frequency if their kidney function is deteriorating and there are other patients that may have bleeding or bruising if the myeloma has affected their bone marrow so much that it has affected these little bitty things called platelets, which are made inside the bone marrow and released into the bloodstream. They look like little plates, and when you cut yourself, they rush to the site to plug the hole so you don't bleed to death. And so when the myeloma is really occupying that bone marrow space, it, it stops a lot of these cells from being emitted. So that's another possible presentation is uh, bruising and bleeding, but not, not so common as the others that I mentioned before. You had mentioned before that the myeloma causes the antibodies in a patient to be produced in an abnormal way. So because of that, do patients sometimes experience an increased amount of infection uh, or a weakened immune system? Absolutely. That is also uh, something that happens with myeloma patients is that they get they can get colds more frequently and pneumonias and things like that. So the the way that the myeloma continues to grow and is undetected inside of the bone marrow is to suppress the immune system. So everyone with myeloma has a immune suppression and can be more susceptible to infection. So moving on into treatments, I first wanted to ask you about the type of myeloma that doesn't require treatment, and that's smoldering myeloma, because a lot of our patients ask us about that, and they have a lot of questions, because, you know, although it's not causing them a lot of trouble now, a lot of them are expressing a lot of worry that in the future it will. And one patient even said, I'm waiting for the hammer to drop. So if you tell us a little bit about that as well. Right. So we talked about the MGUS, and MGUS travels through a phase called smoldering myeloma before it gets to malignant multiple myeloma. And what the smoldering phase is kind of like the middle phase, and it's a variable length. So sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. Just like with MGUS, there's some patients that will never see their MGUS, but it's believed that all myelomas begin this way and travel through this process. So with MGUS, you have bone marrow plasma cells that are increased. They're like a clone of each other, but they're kind of sitting there and they're not really doing anything. They should be kind of less than 10% of the marrow space. And there's no evidence of any other organs being affected. So there are these criteria that we look for what designates whether the myeloma is a malignant and causing organ damage is traditionally called the CRAB criteria, where the C stands for calcium in the blood, the R stands for renal or kidney disease, the A is anemia, and the B is bone disease. And that was updated a few years ago to involve a few more markers that wouldn't be felt or seen by the individual person, but it's something for doctors to see. And it adds a little slim. The Mayo Clinic kind of coined it slim crabs, but every time I think of it, I think of it as slimy crabs. But the <laughs> S, the L, and the M stands for, the S is for the serum, the bone marrow plasma cells greater than 60%. The LI is for the light chain ratio. 
and the M is for MRI findings. And so before this change in the diagnosis, in MGUS is if your plasma cells are less than 10%, and myeloma is if you're greater than 10%, but you have to have end organ damage as well to need chemotherapy. Well, you know, it was uncomfortable for us doctors as well when the plasma cell in involvement in the marrow was increasing, but the patient had not yet kind of busted through to affect other organs, but you're watching them and watching them and feel like you're watching this pot of water that's simmering, that's waiting to boil over. And that's how I describe smoldering myeloma. It's just like you're waiting and watching and you know it's going to happen any minute now. But then, you know, in the medical community, we watched all these patients and then unfortunately they'd have a catastrophic event and your hands were tied because you're not allowed to treat smoldering myeloma. So they pushed back the threshold of when we call patients myeloma based on a series of studies that showed who were the high-risk smolders. And so high-risk smolders is when you start to develop plasma cells in your bone marrow that pass the 60% mark, and that's the S in the slimy crabs. When you pass 60%, then this is, this is a disease that's really malignant, and we have the justification. Then call it myeloma and treat it as myeloma. So the patients who are in the greater than 10 but less than 60 range, we still don't have an answer for those patients. And, you know, I, I hear their frustrations, and I, I feel it as well. The only way we're really allowed to treat those patients are if they're if they if they're on a clinical trial. We do have some some criteria for what's considered high risk smoldering, even that can apply to that group. But we're still really not justified in giving them chemotherapy because there's some of them that will not convert to myeloma. I think that will change in a few years. I think that there will be a place where we can start high risk smolders on some minimal disease, but then. It's not defined like the length of time or, you know, when to stop. But in the clinical trials that did treat high-risk smolders, um, the patients had less likelihood to transform to multiple myeloma. It's always kind of tricky because you don't want to give a human being, I mean, chemotherapies are poison to kill cells, and we don't have the type of chemotherapy that only kills cancer cells and doesn't kill anything else. It, it, we always look for those. That would be ideal. But cancer cells are, are really your normal cells that just evolve a little bit. And so they look a lot like your normal cells. And that's what makes treating cancer challenging. And so the chemotherapies that are designed, they will go after the cancer. But yeah, they do get there is some stuff that's got uh, like hit in the crossfire and that's where your symptoms come. And you know, they're not benign drugs and so to, to expose a human being to that if they didn't need it is a kind of an ethical question. So that's what we're trying to figure out is who really has something that is worth the risk of getting this, you know, therapy that has side effects and, you know, could potentially cause some late effects down the line. You don't want to give someone something that they wouldn't need in the future by making an inappropriate choice of therapy. We always hear, we hear about cancer immunotherapy, and of course we hear about CAR-T. Mm -hmm. And immunotherapy and BITE, which is the bispecific T-cell engagers. How is immunotherapy being used in the treatment of myeloma? So... We do have CAR-T therapy for myeloma. It's still in the clinical trial setting. And 
CAR T therapy has been approved in leukemia and lymphoma, and so many people have, uh, you know, heard of it. Basically, you take out T cells and engineer them to target specific markers on the cancer cell themselves, and then you kind of grow them, multiply them, so they become kind of this like uh, military or heat-seeking missiles for myeloma that you kind of squirt back into the body, and they go right after the myeloma and kill them. So it's a way to kind of enhance your natural immune system with a little genetic modulation to make sure they recognize what the myeloma cell looks like when they go back into the body. Again, the toxicities of the CAR T-cell therapy are the what we call off-target effects, the other cells that get caught in the crossfire. And so these kind of therapies, because of the, the very serious potential kind of immune storm that can occur in patients that receive these therapy have to be delivered in specialized settings. Bispecific T-cell engager therapy is like when you pull a T-cell very close to a cancer cell and stimulate both of them so that they kind of interact next to each other. And there are also some antibody therapies that are attached to drug conjugates. So basically it is a designed antibody that is specifically designed to recognize a myeloma cell, but it's kind of like attached to or linked to a drug poison so that when the plasma cell is attacked, the antibodies adheres to the plasma cell and then the drug, the poison drug is injected directly into the plasma cell itself. And so lots of very exciting, you know, possibilities on the horizon. And I, as far as I think that these will eventually get FDA approved, it's just the safety of the factor, the safety of using these, the setting, who is specifically right for these therapy. There's certainly, you know, all of us have myeloma patients who you give them you know, some therapy and maintenance and a stem cell transplant, which is incorporated into the management of myeloma as standard of care. And we can go into that in more detail as well. And their disease may stay quiet for six or seven years. So if you have a 77-year-old that you treat this way, you would, you know, do that for her instead of something that potentially could be uh, very aggressive with a lot of side effects. So that's one thing that's like the art of treating myeloma as well because there are all these different therapies available. Picking the right therapy for the right patient and there are multiple patient factors to consider. The age of the patient, their comorbidities, their frailty, their ability to travel to the clinic or sit long in infusion chairs. But all of these factors are weighed in and of course biologic factors of the tumor itself. What's the genetic makeup of the plasma cell? What's broken? What is going to be difficult to control? How fast is it moving? So we put all of these, I tell patients and students that I treat, you kind of put all this together like when you're baking a cake and you put all these ingredients together and then out of all this uh, information, we come up with a treatment plan that's you know, ideal for the specific patient. I love that you call it an art because as you were saying before, every patient's myeloma is a little bit different. So of course the treatment is gonna be a little bit different for each patient as well. Right, absolutely. And that's something that's, that I have heard with patients is challenging 
you know, I mean, when you have, that is one thing I've loved about oncology and what drew me to oncology is the level of trust and the relationship that patients have with their doctors. But that is not in every setting. I do have, I have had patients who haven't had that level of trust with the oncologist that has been treating them. And so there's like this little suspicion. There's certain people that still have a little suspicion, like not really believing, especially if they didn't have any symptoms yet, like patients that were diagnosed just because of abnormal blood work. And they're like, these people keep telling me I have a cancer, but I don't feel anything. So there's kind of like, what, you know, why is this person telling me this? And so, and uh, if they get into these settings where we're comparing one treatment to another, I have had patients say, well, why is this person getting this and then I'm getting this or this person getting that? And, you know, there are a group of drugs that are used, but they're not used the exact same way in every individual patient. And it's because of all of these factors that have to be kind of accounted for when we pick a treatment plan. Right. And I love that you mentioned level of trust because that's something here that we always encourage our patients to feel as if they can communicate with their healthcare team. Because a lot of times they go into the room and they think, you know, one, I only have a few minutes, and two, you know, they're the experts, so I'll be quiet and listen to them. And we really want to stress the, the importance that a lot of information is needed by them as well. And one doctor worded it as saying that there's two experts in the room, one that knows how they feel and one that is trying to determine how that patient feels. So that communication definitely has to be open in order for it to be effective treatment for the patient. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, as far as patients go, myeloma can take your life. And it's really important to have that trust. And I would say if there's something about, you know, the energy in the room that's not working when you meet a provider, choose another provider. You really have to be able to trust the person that's dealing with this life or death situation and the medicines are not easy all the time and uh, you have to trust that there's a reason for it and that there will be a benefit for it so I would say you know however you need to do it if you're not satisfied find a way to be satisfied but there are a lot of oncologists you know in the world <laughs> so there's not just one there are some rural areas that do make it a challenge. I do understand that. But then if you are in that situation, I would recommend, you know, getting into a, uh, if you have access to the internet, you know, getting onto an online community just so you can, it's a different language when you start talking about chemotherapies and cancers. And even among the different cancers, the, the drugs are all, the, the names of these drugs sound like Greek, you know, I mean, it's all different. But once you hear people talking about them and, you know, there are forums on the internet and people talk about their symptoms, then you'll realize that you really are not alone. Even though you've never heard of multiple myeloma, there are other people out there with this and are having similar symptoms. I can't express that enough is that I think myeloma patients really should kind of join together and help support one another because myeloma is different than the other malignancies. It's different in the way that it manifests and it's different in the way that it's treated. And the length of treatment and the length of symptoms and the symptom burden is different. And so just, you know, humans need each other and uh, you should reach out. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up because we do, we have our own online community here at LLS. It's called the LLS community. 
and we have a myeloma specific group and we have a lot of myeloma patients on community and I've actually been able to ask them what they would like to ask you. So I've been using their questions to form some of my questions. So you're right, this is an amazing place for patients and caregivers. We welcome caregivers as well, as well as supporters of uh, patients with you know, any type of blood cancer. It's an amazing place for them to come together and support one another. And we've gotten some amazing feedback from patients saying, you know, I, I didn't know anyone else in my life who had this disease or who speak to this disease, and now I finally feel like I'm not alone. And we also, yeah, and one of the things that sets our community apart is that we also have our information specialists who are masters trained social workers and nurses, and they go on every day. So if they find a question, someone is asking something clinical or they're in need of resources, they can answer those questions, they can match them to resources, they can refer them to other organizations, they can refer them to our educational materials. So it's a really kind of holistic space for patients to come together, get the support they need, support each other, get education, and feel like they're being supported. That's fantastic. And I think there's a certain type of patient that joins that community. There are some patients that we talk to them about these communities, but um, they decline. And I often wonder what the reason is because I tend to think that the people who decline are those who need the support the most. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that, you know, I haven't really identified what the barriers are there but it's, a, it's an area of interest for me to, to find out what are the barriers to the people who kind of uh, get silo themselves off and really uh, it may have to do with their coping skills or the way they deal with difficult things, maybe in quiet or silence, but they are really suffering. So to find them a way that they can deal with that in a way that feels right to them can be a challenge. One thing that we talk about here when we try to identify those barriers as well, and especially those patients that you're talking about, the ones that need it the most, is we say this is a club that nobody wants to join. So in a way, admitting that you need this group, admitting that you're part of this group can be admitting to yourself that you're sick, that you're a cancer patient now, that this is part of your identity. And so we want to just remind patients that this is here for your support. This is here to support you. And the beautiful thing about it is you don't have to meet once a week or once a month at a specific time at a support group. You can go on whenever you want. You can do it in the privacy of your home. You can do it in your pajamas. You can do it at two o'clock in the morning. So it's an incredible way to get that support. But, you know, we do recognize that those barriers exist, that this is a, a club that nobody necessarily wants to be a part of. They wouldn't sign up for this if they had the choice, but, you know, it's here nonetheless for them if they need it. Right. That's great. And like you mentioned earlier, Doctor, when you were saying that there's, there's different needs for different patients, just depending on their personality or other factors. There's so many other resources. For example, we have a Living With Myeloma chat that meets every Monday evening online, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., where people log in and they just talk anonymously amongst themselves, and it is moderated by LLS. So they can be rest assured that the conversation will be a productive one, as well as another program we have called the First Connection Program. And what it is is if there is someone who is diagnosed, regardless of where they are in their journey, they connect with an, with an information specialist here 
who can connect them with someone who's in a similar situation. So whether it be similar treatment, similar age, male, female, all the different criteria that the person would feel comfortable speaking to, we create that for them by, by linking those two people up and allowing them to have that conversation. So there's a lot of different resources that we do offer. And again, they're all free. So we definitely encourage people to visit www.lls.org forward slash support to see all of the support resources that we do offer. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode, Dr. Shelton, and speaking with us about myeloma. And thank you for all that you do as well for all your patients and caregivers. Thank you. It's an honor to have been invited, and I'm just really impressed with uh, the outreach that you have through LLS, and I think that's very great for patients, especially when you talk about, you know, they could do it in their pajamas, you know, they don't. (laughs) I think that is very attractive, so keep, keep working on that. Thank you so much. And for those listening who would like more information on myeloma, visit www.lls.org forward slash myeloma, or you can call an LLS information specialist at 1-800-955-4572, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, who will give you a list of all the resources that we have for you. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society would like to inform you of PROMISE, a research study to identify, screen, and track individuals at high risk of developing multiple myeloma. The goal of this study is to increase early detection in order to develop new therapies that prevent disease progression and improve survival. To learn more about this study as well as how you can join, call 617-582-8544 or visit www.promise.org promisestudy.org Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.